Hello, and welcome to this episode of Marine Band Offstage. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Connor Mikula. Today's topic is one that hangs over the head of every musician, practice. No matter if you're a novice or a master, we all need practice in order to advance our musicianship. In this episode, I sit down with two members of the Marine Band to talk about how we practice. Today, I'm happy to be joined by two of my extremely talented colleagues in the Marine Band. First, we have Gunnery Sergeant Lucy DeSano, a clarinetist. How are you, Lucy? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're excited you're here. And we also have band bassoonist Staff Sergeant Stephen Rudman. Hi, thanks for having me. Straight into the thick of it. When you were a college or a high school musician, did you ever have an experience where your lesson teacher would hand you a piece of music that terrified you? Maybe it was more ink than paper, or maybe you just wondered... Where do I even start? I feel like that still happens, you know, consistently. <laughs> it's it's like it's perfectly natural, you know, like there's so much physicality to what we do, um, hand-eye coordination, stuff like that. When it's unfamiliar territory, you can't help but get a little nervous when you see it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially uh, when you're someone learning maybe in high school or a newer student or something like that. So uh, both of you, where do you start personally if you're handed something like that? I think the best place to start for me is to, if it's available, listen to a recording of the piece and get the context for what you're playing, especially if it's something with a bunch of notes um, I find it to be really helpful to know what else is going on or where I'm supposed to fit in the piece. And that, that kind of helps ground me a little bit. Yeah, maybe putting these terrifying notes uh, on the page in yeah. front of you in the context of, oh, it's just a nice piece. That makes it a little less scary, right? Totally. Yeah, and oftentimes it's something that you see that looks bad actually maybe fits on the instrument really well. Maybe it goes at a slower tempo than you were imagining. So oftentimes just by giving yourself that context of what you're seeing, you're actually able to calm down a little bit and and just process it better than that deer in the headlights moment at the very beginning. Right. And so once you've done that and you've sort of given this context for the piece, made it a little bit less scary, what is both of your first approaches for actually putting uh, your instrument to your face to play? I think it depends on the piece. Um, you know, if it's something really lyrical, I might focus more on what is my interpretation of this piece. I might mark phrases or um, shapes, you know, dynamics that I want to do. Um, if it's something that's really technical, that's going to take many, many hours of practice to nail down, um, the musical part is still there always, of course, but I find it helpful to sort of triage you know, this is the part that I'm going to have to spend 10 hours, like this one measure I'm going to have to spend 10 hours on or whatever it is, um, and sort of, you know, come up with a list of priorities in terms of like where you need to spend your time. Right. Like making a game plan or flipping through and thinking, oh, this is the spot that I'm definitely going to need to look at. Um, I find that the first step with most, most students is the most difficult when it comes to practicing. It's that moment where you hand them that terrifying piece of music and they just sit there and think, where do I even start? So making a game plan is an excellent first step. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, the the kind of pitfall that a lot of us, you know, get stuck in is thinking of it as just a beginning to end process. You start at the top of the piece, you end at the bottom of the piece, and more often than not, that's going to be 
the least productive way to go about it. So if you can just, I use brackets a lot in in my in my, on my page. Um, if you can just kind of highlight the moments that you need to get to, if nothing else, in your practice session, and just instantly skip to those moments. Um, that often just kind of breaks it down. You know you're you know you're getting to the priorities rather than wasting your time on the easy stuff because we don't need to practice the easy stuff often it's easy that that you know that makes sense it's the difficult tricky bits that we need to isolate and we need to just go straight to in our practice when we've got a, a concert coming up i i love that answer i cannot tell you how many students i've had where they think of it as a top to bottom process like you said and they'll come in week after week having practiced quite a bit but as the run through goes on and as they get through the piece it starts to get a little bit less confident a little worse because where do they always start every time they go to practice the beginning so I, I would agree like I tell them to write in brackets like you and say hey start with the hard stuff maybe run the easier stuff but start with the hard stuff don't start with the beginning because it's always obvious when a, a student has been practicing you know top to bottom and I think there is a place for running through music top to bottom and actually that's kind of where I go back to working with the recording a lot is um in the very beginning when I need to identify what spots I need to bracket on my page I will do um a sort of mock run through playing along with a recording um and that's when I get the chance to go top to bottom and for me like instantly I can identify oh gosh, when I am playing this with everything else around me in this recording, when I'm hearing all the other sections, all the other parts together, this is the spot that I trip up. Because it's not always obvious um, based on the ink on the page what is going to trip you up. So if you ha are having trouble finding those bracket points to, to isolate and pinpoint in your practice, um, maybe trying to do some sort of mock run-through to find where you mentally stumble or physically stumble. Yeah, it's a balance, I think, right? Because you don't want to just run through the piece over and over again and call that your practice. Um, you want to be really intentional and really mindful of what you're practicing and how you're using your time. But I think run-throughs can be really helpful as a check-in to say, you know, I've spent this much time working on this really minute detail um, and now how does it fit in with the rest and what's working and what's not working so I think it's a balance between doing those two things um, to get to the end product right uh, so sometimes when I practice, uh, it feels like there's a hundred different things that I want to change or improve. We've talked about establishing the context. We've talk, talked about technical passages, uh, deciding musical nuances with everything. And so uh, sometimes I feel like there's too much that I want to change or improve. Is there a danger to trying to do too much at once with your practice? Too much at once? I think yes. Too much like... Ultimately, no. I mean, I, I think one of the beautiful things about music and learning music is that it's never finished. I think there's, you know, there are pieces that have come back again and again through my career that every time I look at them, they're new. Um, and I get to add something, not that they're new, but I can add more layers to them. I can find as I experience more as a human, I can put more of my human experience into that. But um, when you have a limited amount of time, I think it can be really distracting to try to do all of the different things at once. Um, so something that I find really helpful is to use a practice notebook um, and isolate, you know, 
one fundamental in one part of the piece. So only think about intonation at this given moment or only think about rhythm at this given moment. Um, and then you can track what you've worked on and what you need to work on. So say I have a list of 10 things. Say I have a list of 10 excerpts that I have to practice. I mean, this is a very real scenario. You're getting ready for an audition. You have 10 excerpts. They all need detailed work. You're not going to do all of the detailed work on all of the excerpts in one day. So I find a practice notebook to be really helpful so that you can kind of manage your time but between the excerpts and then between um, maybe different parts of the excerpt or different concepts, uh, different fundamentals. That That's helped me to stay organized when there's so much to do. Yeah, balance of practice like that when it comes to not focusing on too many things is something that, especially with my most novice, new, fresh students, I talk to them a lot about. Even breaking it down as simple as, okay, this time I want you to just play one note and you're just going to play the rhythm. And then, okay, now I want you to play the notes, but don't worry too much about the rhythm. You know, make sure the quarter notes are longer than the eighth notes, but just you don't need to keep it perfectly in time with the metronome. And then you can kind of practice time and notes independently, and then you can kind of marry those together. And actually, I think this is a good point to mention the value of recording yourself when you practice. Um, that's something I think it's really hard to do because it's difficult to listen to yourself critically with no distraction, um, which is what recording does. Um, but I find that, you know, your brain can only do so many things at once. And if you're performing and listening at the same time, that means that your brain is multitasking. And what recording does is you can record your practice. And even if you record a measure at a time, just a small fragment, you can listen back with total focus and really hear what's going on. And that can help you isolate some of those fine details that you're talking about. Yeah, I would I would 100% agree. Just having the chance to listen back to yourself can be so telling. Um, because you sort of don't know what you don't know. And unless it's obvious to you that you're making some phrase a certain way or whatnot, unless you already kind of knew that that was a, something you were going to struggle with and you needed to work on in your practice, um, listening back to yourself really helps you kind of catch all the things that you might be surprised by. So when we work on all these great practice techniques to kind of look at this, look at this, look at that, and then try and do multiple of them at the exact same time, how do we avoid getting lost in the weeds? How do we keep in mind those long-term goals that we set up for ourselves with the game plan that, Lucy, you mentioned earlier? How do we avoid just getting too uh, wound up in just one tiny little thing where we lose sight of what we're trying to do? I think the biggest sort of poison to our productive practice is just getting frustrated and being demotivated. Um, feeling like we're failing is such a detriment to wanting to continue to move on. And I find that when I'm getting too stuck in the weeds, like you're mentioning, that's when I start to feel like I'm not getting it instead of looking at it from a point of success where I am getting it. So it seems counterproductive because you probably have a whole lot that you need to tackle in a short amount of time when you have 30 minutes, an hour to practice. But the way to actually do that, it's like the old saying, how do you, how do you eat, an, eat a whale one bite at a time? You've, you've got to kind of go through and just set up 
very small, achievable goalposts for yourself. So that way you can feel like in the span of 10 seconds, you've succeeded at something. And then do that again, do that again. And, and for me, that means I have to really find a slow tempo that puts me about 85 to 90% of the way towards my ultimate goal for this passage. I'm, I'm almost there with a couple of reps, maybe takes me about 20 seconds. I will have gotten this passage up to exactly where I want it to be. And not only with tempo, but also with the sort of size of the passage you're talking about. Maybe playing eight measures at once is just too much for me to tackle. But if I find the half measure that I really want to refine and just look at that, that's a much more achievable chunk of music that I can get perfect. And then before you know it, you've had success after success after success, and, and you've really pinpointed what's wrong, you've improved it nearly instantly, and now you feel motivated to continue doing that. I think just putting too much on our plate at once really, really does us a disservice. It's just all about one thing at a time. I think that's such a wise strategy because I can certainly remember times in college where I would go weeks or months feeling like I hadn't made any improvement. You know, it, it, practicing is sort of this double-edged sword where you have to be really critical of your playing in order to get better. Um, and there's kind of no instant gratification. It can take a very long time to see noticeable improvement, at least on a large scale. And so I love that, breaking that down into really small pieces so that you can see like, actually, I am getting better in, in very small ways day after day after day. Um, I think that's really helpful to stay motivated. Um, and another thing that I do is I try to stay in touch with why I'm practicing, because it can, you know, s sitting in a room for an hour at a time and being critical of yourself is not necessarily the most fun feeling. Um, but remembering why you're there, like remembering what it is about music that lights you up um, and remembering that you're here so that you can sound your very best so that you can play music that will hopefully make someone else's day better um, or move them in some way. And so, you know, remembering like, I'm doing this today because I have this concert coming up in two months and I get to play this piece and it's gonna sound so awesome. So that's a way that you can sort of help yourself stay motivated in the long term when it's when it's hard to see the forest through the, through the trees. Right. And actually, going back to recording yourself practicing, this is something that helped me out a lot in high school. I would get really down on myself and think, Connor, you don't know how to play the saxophone. Like, oh my goodness. And then I would go and purposefully look at old recordings of me a month ago and I would go, oh, no, no, the practicing has been working and it's been very good. So I, I definitely utilize, I, I always had trouble keeping a practice journal. That was something that a lot of teachers have told me and it just never clicked for me. But as soon as I started listening to myself practicing and in time, in real time, I could take notes that really kind of up to my practicing game. So something that I also personally struggled with for a long time was doing all of this excellent, all of these excellent things we've talked about in the practice room. I would do everything I could only for me to go and freeze and mess up when it came time to the actual performance, either in a lesson or on stage. Uh, does this happen often for either of you or your students, and how do you address it? 
So I think this is a very common problem and it's definitely one that I've experienced. Um, and what I would say is that it's just as important to practice performing as it is to practice practicing your notes. Um, something that I find to be really helpful is visualization or mock auditions. I guess those are two sort of different things, but visualizing your concert, visualizing yourself playing, visualizing it going well. Um, and then when you get to the concert space, you get to the stage. It feels familiar because you've been there before in your in your mind. Um, or mock auditions, similarly, you your body reacts differently when you're stressed and when you're not stressed. Um, and so you know a performance is going to be a stressful environment. You have to practice playing in a stressful environment so that you know what that feels like so that it's familiar when you get there so one of the most valuable things that I did like when I was taking auditions for example is I would find people to play for um, and not just anybody but someone who would make you reasonably nervous playing for them um, and you do enough of those over and over again you practice getting nervous over and over again it becomes um, more familiar and less distracting and so you're able to give more of the performance that you want um, with that experience yeah this is sort of a crude way of putting it but I especially when I was taking auditions my my mindset was I need to keep doing this so that way I get bored of it um, and I and don't get me wrong I'm not bored of playing music not by any stretch of the imagination but when you have to put yourself in that nerve-wracking environment and and it's new to you still, um, you're anything but bored. Your adrenaline is going crazy. Um, and this can be auditions, this can be performances. Um, and I found that sometimes just the process of picking yourself up and going after the next one was what was so important for me to just kind of get bored of it so that way I could do it better. Um, so that way I had control of my nerves, of, of my shaky hands or, or, or shaky embouchure or whatever it may be, um, because it was familiar to me, like, like you're saying. Speaking of practicing performing, I do this thing to my students that uh, they have now realized the value of, but they just hated it at first, and that's I would have them do a run-through and set them up. I would clear the room of any stands, make it sort of look like a stage, and I would have a chair far away from them on the other side of the room. I'd make them stand outside of the practice room or band room that we were having the lesson in, wait for a minute, and then come in, I'd, perfectly silent, and I would say, all right, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, you know, not their first name, you may begin. And they think, this is so weird, but then they usually have sort of a shaky run-through, and they start to do that over and over, and then they get to the day of solo and ensemble or whatever it is they're practicing for, and it's a piece of cake because their mean lesson teacher has been making them do that every other lesson for months now. So uh, do, do you have anything that you do with your students like that to maybe help them with this idea of practicing performing? One thing that I teach um, and I, I try to do um, myself is I try to make sure if I'm going to do any sort of run through in my practice session, I will put it first. It's the first thing I do when I've turned over that page of music. Um, so that way I am giving myself basically the harshest scenario I can think of where I haven't had a chance to noodle on the notes. I haven't had a chance to check in on the hard stuff. I'm just going to play this run through down right away, completely cold. So when I'm teaching, I ask my students to come in 
and they might have questions about the their etude or their repertoire or whatever and that's fine we'll get to those questions for sure but first i want them to just play it start to finish and try to make sure as best as they can if there's a stumbling block that they get to just to keep time no matter what happens and keep playing through and maintaining their their pulse and their meter because that's what a performance is. A performance, for, for better or worse, if you have a squawk, if you have something that didn't come out just right, you're going to have to keep going. But so often when we practice, we're not simulating that. We're, we're, we're giving ourselves a chance to restart. We're giving ourselves a chance to go back, fix it, stopping and starting at, at kind of uh, unusual times compared to what it's like to actually perform it. So to give myself the chance to perform it and to give my students a chance to perform it, we do just that. We, we start things with a, a run-through. And so like we talked about earlier, run-throughs are not, it's not the only thing you can practice. It's not the only thing you can work on because you need to be able to break things down. But forcing yourself to just get through it is going to simulate what you're going to have to do on stage. And that's a really important thing to practice because I find myself having to push through mistakes because if I stop every time I make, especially the same mistake, repeated mistakes, it's like an instinct. It's like a reaction. You get to that same mistake. Maybe my low B didn't speak and I'll stop or I won't try and push it through and make it speak even if it doesn't right away. And so kind of pushing through these mental ruts is really, really important when it comes to practicing and in all the practicing I see my students do because practicing music isn't like studying for a biology test. It's not memorizing information. It's training a skill. And so you can't cram music is something one of my teachers used to say to me uh, for better or for worse. Maybe I shouldn't have done this. Oftentimes in high school, I would just study really hard the night before for like a biology exam and then I would do fine. You can't do that in music. You need to train your instincts, your muscle memory, anything like that. I think that's so true because, you know, you can find yourself getting into a performance where you're used to doing one thing. You're used to stopping every time you make this mistake and you're you can in end up involuntarily doing that. And this is another situation where recording is a super useful tool because you can say, I'm going to do a run through of this and I'm going to record myself and I'm not going to ever stop. Um and I think, well, it's funny because I would probably argue that you can't cram for an academic test either. I mean, well, you can pass the test, but well, I don't remember right, any of those biology tests. You don't retain tests. anything, right? Um, but something that um, I find super helpful, you know, I've found myself really frustrated in the practice room before. You're going after like trying to get something faster and you go again and again and again. And maybe you get it right a few times, but then you mess it up and you just can't seem to get it any better and I find that nine times out of ten if I just sort of leave it alone for the day and go give myself like a night of sleep my brain keeps working on it um, and I think there's something to that uh, scientifically I don't know what that is but I find that you know if you were to practice five hours over one day versus five hours split over five days I think the performance at the end of five days would be much much better because you know you have to do the work of learning 
the sort of muscle memory or whatever, like training your brain, hey, this is what we're about to do. But then I think there's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes that you have nothing to do with. Um, and so like, if you can give that the time and space to work, um, I think that makes a big difference. I think one of the hardest stages of practicing, for me anyway, is the final polish stage. You know, it's easy to know what you have to do when you're just learning notes, metronome, go slow, uh, take it in chunks, but bringing a piece from 98.5% to 98.6% to 99%, how do you all address this, especially with something that's going to be directly compared to other musicians like an audition excerpt? So... To, to actually talk about my audition for the Marine Band, um, this was actually the first time that I got to a point in my preparation where I forcibly dropped the tempo of everything, no matter if I felt like it was uh, easy and not technical, if it was technical, whatever it was, I dropped the tempo of everything and, and stopped doing run-throughs for a little while. Because what I learned is that the run-throughs I was doing was only, and, I, and I'm, I'm a hypocrite right now because I keep on talking about you should do run-throughs, you shouldn't do run-throughs. And the point is, is that there's, there's always a time and place for everything. But at that point in my preparation, I realized that all the run-through was doing to me was proving to me that it wasn't quite there yet. It was just proving to me that I had worked and I've gotten it this far, but it's not going any farther. So I'm, I'm, I'm real, I realized, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I just making myself feel bad in, in my practice sessions by trying to do these half-baked run-throughs? So bringing down the tempo again, after I'd already worked it up for probably a month already, resetting it. I found really started to make th problems obvious that I didn't find obvious before when you're stuck in the weeds like that and helped me clean them out so much better because I, I took that step back. Things felt so much easier 20 clicks slower than they felt 20 clicks slower a month ago. And, and, and giving yourself a chance to hit that reset button, whether it's tempo or isolating measures or, or whatever, is always a good check-in, especially when you're working on a real long-term project. There's another element of this, too, which is as you're getting closer to a performance or an audition and you're at 98.5% trying to get to 99, um, you want to make sure that you're building positive muscle memory and your sense of confidence for the performance. Um, and what I mean by positive muscle memory is whether you make a mistake or play something perfectly, your brain remembers that you're, you're, you're building these ruts, the, you're building these grooves in your brain. And if you make the same mistake over and over and over again, you're inadvertently training yourself to keep making that mistake. So rather than keeping stuff at tempo, um, slowing it down and building your confidence, building your sense of calm um, so that you can give a calm performance um, and building in those positive, you know, I hate the word perfect, but, you know, perfect <laughs> reps, not building in mistakes. I think right before a performance is is really, really important um, before my probably my Marine Band audition and, you know, the auditions that I was taking um, at that point in my life, the last sort of week 
would be dedicated to, yes, maybe there's a run through here or there just to keep f being familiar with the piece, but very, very slow practice, very deliberate, just training my muscles to go where they know to go um, and not inadvertently add any tension to my playing. Right. I definitely, uh, when I took my audition here, I was playing excerpts slow the morning up. I was in my practice room playing, you know, uh, Rolling Thunder half tempo and then build it up and kind of ironing out those uh, uh, wrinkles, so to speak. So uh, uh, those are all great ways to kind of take something from 98.5% to 99%, and that's something we experience a lot with uh, auditions when we're all playing the exact same thing. Something that I try to talk about or coach about is uh if you'll indulge me for a second the four stages of competency have any of you heard this yes so uh originally called the four stages of learning which i think is interesting by a management trainer named martin broadwell but they are the four stages at which we learn something and so it starts off with unconscious incompetence you're doing something wrong and you don't even know it which i think is the most dangerous stage to be in because you sit there and think oh, i'm playing so well and then you don't even know it that moves to conscious incompetence, you know what you're doing wrong, and then that mo moves into conscious competence, which is you can do it correctly if you think really hard about it, but then sort of this stage of 98.5% to 99% moves to unconscious competence, which is, it's just second nature. It's just how you play it. So have you had any experience in learning things that way? Do you disagree with this model, agree with it? What are your insights? No, that, that tracks for me for sure. And I think what you said, what did you say? That unconscious incompetence is the most dangerous, mm -hmm. but conscious incompetence is the hardest. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the, the, yeah. like the painful moment where you go, oh, you know, I mean, it's important, right? Because now you can do something about it. But this is like, this is what recording does where you, you listen back to a recording and go, oh, I was really out of tune and I had no idea. Um, and pushing past that can be really hard. Um, but I think just... I have sort of trained myself to revel in that moment a little bit, like, because that's how you get better. You, you have to know something is wrong uh, before you can fix it. Um, and so just trying to be okay with and almost get excited when I discover something that I can do better. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a really important lesson to keep in mind as an aspiring professional when you're in undergrad or maybe you're starting a master's, it can be really hard to hear something from your teacher. I mean, it was very hard for me to hear something from my teacher that I had no idea that I was doing wrong. And, and it's a very vulnerable place to get to that conscious, conscious incompetence part because we don't want to be told if, if we don't think anything's wrong, we don't want to be told that actually, no, there's something you can improve upon. And, and so I would encourage anyone who's at that level in their career or in their playing, or, or even if you just want to get to the next level of your ability, um, to be extremely open to feedback from your teachers, even if you, you don't agree with it or it's hard to hear, because ultimately that is going to lead you to that level of unconscious un wow unconscious competence really hard it's to like say it's like a tongue twister <laughs> yeah. to get through all four i know <laughs> i'm going to have to practice that you know slow, right. slow that tempo down i'd also like to say too 
something that I found very challenging is separating my my sense of self-worth and my sense of confidence in my ability as a player from this kind of criticism. I think it can be really easy to fall into the trap of I played that badly therefore I'm bad <laughs> which is obviously not true but I think it gets way easier to take um, criticism in and use it to your advantage if you're able to do that if you're able to say you know I am a fine clarinet player I love making music I make beautiful music and also I'm going to tackle this thing and make it even better right absolutely and uh, keeping yourself positive uh, positive attitude for me when I go into a practice room is a really uh, big thing for me personally. I know not everyone needs to do that, but I like to go into a practice room with a smile on my face, whether it's about the practicing or something else. But uh, yeah, that's all very, very, very good. Uh, also, along those lines of learning something, we've all heard some version of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule where it takes 10,000 hours of practice to truly master something. Uh, as masters of clarinet and bassoon, would you say that that rule has merit? Yes and no. Um, I I haven't read that book, but I, I the gist of it being that it takes 10,000 hours to get good at something. Um, obviously, I've been playing clarinet for, I think, 24 years at this point. Um, so it's taken me a very long time to get to where I am. But I think... Um, something that's not emphasized enough is the the way that you use your time versus the actual amount of time. Um, I, I definitely fell into a trap of like, ding, 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 I've hit an hour on the clock. I am done with this practice session. Um, and only as I got older and more experienced um, practicing did I learn that really it's about using your time efficiently and really hyper-focusing on what you're trying to do. Um, you can get more done in a 15-minute practice session than you can in an hour if you're just sort of mindlessly running from begin beginning to end like we talked about. Yeah, I it, it could be a com perfectly 100% accurate number. It could be complete garbage. Um, I've never really worried too much about that because I think it's all about the quality, not the quantity. Um, and regardless of how many hours it does take to master something, you're never going to get close to reaching that number unless you are enjoying yourself doing it. No one's going to put up with 10,000 hours of work if it's not something they're engaged in, if it's not something they like to do. I certainly was never going to get there. So I found that I it was much more worth it to me to focus on how I am doing this process? How am I practicing? Am I enjoying doing the work rather than how, you know, did I clock in and clock out enough hours today? Right. And credit to Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour rule is often taken out of context. Uh, he does specify that it needs to be properly directed practice. It's not just any practice like we've talked about, but sort of along these lines recently, uh, a lot of schools, have been backing off of this practice. But when I was in middle school, I had to fill out a practice log where it's I signed it and my parents signed it. It said I practiced X amount of minutes this week, last week. Uh, what, what do you all think of those, especially for young musicians? Yeah, I, I had to do those in school too. And I definitely, I was the kind of person who practiced a lot because I loved playing the clarinet. So I practiced probably more than I needed to on the practice logs, but I still like fill them out the night before with made up numbers. <laughs> so, um, but <clears throat> I think 
the danger of, well, I'll start off by saying I totally understand why practice logs are a thing. And, um, you know, my husband is a band director and I know he's faced um, pressure to do practice logs because it's a very tangible way to track um, learning in in a field that it's kind of hard to quantify. Um, but I think this sort of runs into the same danger that I fell into when I was younger of saying, ding, 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 I've made it to the end of the hour, um, where I would so much rather see something like a practice notebook or something else that promotes more mindful practice or more goal-oriented practice versus just practicing to the clock. I think I think it can be a useful tool as long as it's as long as it has the right intentions. Um, I I think what I've witnessed with in in some band directors' methods, um, and I'm not trying to diss on band directors, um, but I have seen the practice log used as a way to sort of shame someone, and now being on the other side of working through a lot of difficult practice moments in my own career. Um, I've learned that if I were to see a practice log and the hours were not adding up and this person did not put a lot of time into it, oftentimes that tells me that there's something else that needs to be addressed. Maybe that person had a hard week and, and, and no one can practice, you know, when, when their you know, mental health and well-being isn't in a good place. And, and I certainly can't. Um, and, and so I think that a practice log is useful as an indicator of somebody who is having a hard time approaching playing their instrument or having a hard time working on it. When I knew that I didn't put enough practice in, um, in my own playing, it was often because I was hating practicing and it gave me literal anxiety to practice. Maybe it was because I was beating myself up too much. Maybe it was because whatever. And, and I found that instead of just shaming myself, um, because I didn't put those hours in, what I actually needed to do was figure out the cause. Why wasn't I able to get myself to practice those hours? I think that practice logs, uh, when they were first given to me in sixth grade, when I first picked up the saxophone, they were a very good tool to kind of set expectations. You know, oh, you need to practice this instrument. Oh, you need to practice it often, maybe not eight hours one day, but rather half an hour every day through the week. Once I got to be more of a serious musician in high school and I was thinking about majoring in music, they become they became more and more of something like, oh, I just got to sign this. But at first, I think they were very helpful, especially as a young musician, to sort of set the table for how this is going to go and what I need to do and what is expected of me when it comes to practicing. Speaking of external influences on your practicing, have you found that you use the skills you've honed as a practicer of your instrument on anything else in your life? Have you maybe used this method of zooming in or zooming out or some version of practicing with the recording? Does that correlate to anything that you do outside of music? I think just in general, taking things slower uh, is, a, is a universal uh, attribute that I, I try to apply in other places. Don't always work, but if, if something's not working quite right for me, I'm often finding that it's because I'm trying to rush the job. 
I'm trying to do something too fast. So I think I think the whole world could just go a little bit slower sometimes. This is the thing about practicing that I, I love because whether you intend to become a musician or not, you can really learn about how to learn something, how to get good at something, how to set goals, um, and how to analyze, you know, your your methods or your playing or something. Um, and that's applicable to any field. It doesn't have to be about music. It can be learning any topic um, or practicing any skill. Um, and once you get good at practicing, those skills are there for you. You don't have to relearn them when you want to pick up something else. Excellent, excellent insight. Well, Lucy, Stephen, I would love to continue to talk to you for so much longer, but unfortunately, I need to go practice. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was written by Staff Sergeant Connor Mikula, and it was produced and edited by Master Sergeant Patrick Morgan and Staff Sergeant Joe Cradler. Recorded in John Philip Sousa Band Hall at Marine Barracks, Washington, D.C.